The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to continue there this morning. And as we do, let me ask you this. How many of you remember the days when you could go into the airport and walk with your friends and with your family all the way down to the gate where they were going to get on a plane and fly away? I think most of you probably remember that. Some of you might have been really little when you could still do that. But I think most of you might remember there was a day in the life of air travel here in America where we could go all the way to the door with our friends and families and we could wait at the door when they got off the plane and be there to greet them. And those were sweet days. I grew up in airports. My dad traveled a lot. I ran around a lot of airports in this country, but I, I loved being able to go all the way to the door. I loved being right there when he got off the airplane. And as my wife and I traveled this week, I lamented the fact that my kids will never get to do that. Like, they'll never know anything beyond security unless they're getting on the airplane. When I fly off to Central Asia, they won't be able to go down there with me. They won't be able to wait there for me when I come off. They, they can't go through that line. And do you know why the way that we travel has changed? Do you know why our kids will never know that reality, the sweetness of that moment? It's because on September 11th, 2001, a cataclysmic event occurred in the life of our country. Something happened that forever changed the way that we relate to travel. There was a time before that event that we speak about, and then there's life after that event. September 11th, 2001, utterly changed everything for how we relate to it. We speak about it before and we speak about it after. Well, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is trying to draw out the same kind of contrast for you and I. There is a cataclysmic event that occurred in the history of humanity that utterly transformed everything about how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. In fact, you can speak of it as life before that event and you can speak of it as life after that event. Paul wants us to see the contrast of life before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and life after the resurrection of Christ. Paul wants us to see how everything about how we relate to God and how we relate to one another swings on the hinges of the gospel. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to I read something for you from Galatians chapter 3 into chapter 4. And we're not going to cover it all this morning. We're going to finish it up next week. But what I want you to do as I read it, I want you to listen for the various ways that Paul references the before and the after. The various phrases that Paul uses to, to note these changes in time, this cataclysmic event that has occurred and how it changes reality for us. So look back at verse 23. I'm going to read through verse 7 of chapter 4, and I want you to listen. Listen for the then. Listen for the now. Listen for those kind of phrases of the until. Listen for how Paul is setting up this contrast for us. Verse 23. Now before faith came, so there you go, it starts off pretty easy, right? Softball, right on, right on the middle, all right? Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you hear all the different ways Paul tried to set that contrast up? The befores and the afters, the befores and the thens, now, before, until, but now, no longer, as long as and when, all those different references to time, how the cataclysmic event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. Life before Christ is not the same as life in Christ. Jesus changes everything. Being found in Christ, quite literally, Paul says, changes the way that we relate to God. Before Christ said we were imprisoned under the guardianship, the discipline of the law. But in Christ, when faith came, when the time had come, now in Him, we're no longer slaves, but sons. The way that we relate to God is entirely different now that Christ has come, we find ourselves in Him. But not only that, the way that we relate to one another has been radically changed as well. The various ways that we would differentiate ourselves from each other, the various ways that we would stack ourselves against each other, the various ways that we would interact with one another, all of those things have been set as secondary to who we are because of what God has done for us in Christ. The way we relate to each other and the unity that we have is radically different after Christ. Life before and life after are not the same. So Paul, in setting up this contrast for us, wants to shift our eyes and the gaze of our hearts to how what God has done in Christ changes the way that we live the lives that we live. But before we can look at the different aspects of what it means to relate to God differently because of Christ and relate to one another differently because of Christ, one thing that Paul assumes in the way that he writes and would have been normal for the first century church and for the church for centuries to come, but is less normal for us, Paul assumes that you and I understand that the transformation in our status with God and the transformation in our unity with one another is grounded in our union with Christ. All the way through that passage, Paul continues to speak of us as being in Christ. That it's in Christ that we're sons. It's in Christ that we're one. It's into Christ that we're baptized. The most fundamental thing about you and I as a follower of Christ is that we are in Him. Theologians call this our union with Christ. John Murray, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th or 19th century, He says that nothing is more central and nothing is more basic than our union and communion with Christ. It is indeed the central truth of all of salvation. In fact, if you were to go look it up on your computers, in the New Testament, in particular, mostly in one of Paul's 13 letters, 
over 100 times the phrase or the derivative phrase of in Christ is used to talk about a Christian. In fact, in the New Testament days and in the days of the early church, the most common way to speak of a follower of Christ was not as a Christian, not as someone who was born again, but as someone who was in Christ. That's the most fundamental reality about being a follower of Jesus. It's in Christ that we're sons of God. It's in Christ into which we're baptized. It's in Christ that we are all made one. See, the thing that you and I miss out on, it, it's not common in our parlance, in our communication, in, in the way we teach or preach today, but it would have been common then, is the understanding that all of the blessings and all of the riches of the gospel, our justification, our adoption, our redemption, our reconciliation, our sanctification, our glorification, all of the blessings, all of the riches of the gospel, all of the inheritance that Paul has been talking about is found in Jesus. They're found in Him. They're His. And by the grace of God, you and I find ourselves in Him. Our justification, our righteousness, all these great things that Paul has been talking about, they don't exist apart from Jesus. We can't have them without having Him. Why does that matter? We don't talk about our union with Christ very much in the 21st century. There aren't a lot of books written about that. This was the most common way to talk about being a follower of Christ back then, but we don't talk about it a lot now. Now we tend to, and I know I'm guilty of this, all right? Here's why it matters. Because you and I tend to talk about the gospel and tend to talk about the riches and the inheritance of the gospel in such a way that we talk about Jesus being the dispenser of these things rather than the owner of these things in whom we find ourselves. See, you, you and I don't have a righteousness of our own. Righteousness is Jesus, and we get him. You and I don't possess our own justification. Jesus is the one who lived the life we were supposed to live, fully fulfilling the law of God. We get him. All of the blessings, all of the riches of the gospel, they're found in Christ. And the most fundamental thing about you as a follower of Jesus is that you're in him. When we talk about the blessings of the gospel, justification or righteousness or adoption or sanctification, as though Jesus is the means to those things, that's what he becomes, a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. We get him. We're in him. And it's in him the fullness of the blessing is found. It's in him that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Friends, you and I easily make Jesus the means to the end rather than the central reality. This has been a problem for the church ever since the church quit talking about the union, our union with Christ as the most central reality of salvation. Even John Calvin would, would argue this with the church because even in his day, they were beginning to move away from this in the way that they would speak. No one denies the reality, but the way that we talk about it betrays it. I mean, how many of us relate to each other and talk about ourselves as being in Christ? I mean, how, how, for how many of us is that our descriptor of ourselves when it talks about us being a follower of Jesus, that we're in Christ? Calvin would try to come up with different ways to impress upon the church the importance of our union with Christ and the fact that all of the riches of the gospel are found in him. And Calvin would say something like this, that the gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. The gospel is Jesus, clothed with the gospel. 
the central reality to the gospel is that we get him. Because it's in him all the riches of the inheritance are found. The gospel is the proclamation, the good news of what God has done through Jesus and the offer being made to those who hear the gospel proclaimed is to receive Jesus. Not simply to receive through Jesus justification or to receive through Jesus righteousness. No, it's to receive Jesus. To be found in him. For him to be in you and you to be in him because it's in him. But the blessing of the gospel is found. See, salvation is ours in Christ. Not just by him and not just through him. Which is why Paul will say, as he shifts our gaze onto this cataclysmic event that has occurred, that's changed everything, that our relationship to God now is utterly different, is utterly unique because we're in Jesus. So to talk about us no longer being slaves, but being sons, and to talk about that reality apart from being in Jesus is to make Jesus a means to the end. Does that make sense? In Christ, Paul says, our relationship to God is fundamentally different. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer under the discipline and the imprisonment of the law. We're sons. Look back at verse 25 and 26. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. There's the before. For in Christ Jesus, not through Christ Jesus, not by Christ Jesus, not because of Christ Jesus, but in him, you are all sons of God through faith. Some writers will say that the argument that Paul is making in this book flows up to this point entirely to this verse. That this verse is the apex of the argument that Paul is making. And everything up to this point flows here and everything from this point flows out of this. In Christ, your relationship to God is fundamentally different. John Stott, in writing about this, says that God is now our Father who in Christ has accepted and forgiven us. Right? In Jesus, we no longer fear God, dreading the punishment we deserve. Rather, we love him with a deep familial devotion. We're not prisoners awaiting the final execution of our sentence. We're not children, minors under the restraint of a tutor, but sons of God and heirs of his glorious kingdom, enjoying the status and the privileges of grown-up sons. Now, right now in chapter 3, Paul's trying to establish the fact that your relationship with God has been transformed as you find yourself in Christ. In chapter 4, we're going to get there next week, Paul's going to talk about the experience of that reality. You realize those are two fundamentally different things. They're related, but they're different. To know something to be true is one thing. To experience the truth of it is entirely different. Paul's establishing right now the fact that in Christ, our status, our identity, our relationship with God is different. We're no longer imprisoned by the law. We're no longer slaves in the law. Now we're sons through Christ and in Christ. But in chapter 4, he's going to talk about what it means to experience that today and tomorrow. And I think that might be one of the most important things we get to so far in this entire book because the emails that I've received so far in Galatians, the conversations that I've had either after the service or on Wednesday night tend to fall into this category. And I know it to be true about me. You know, I'm, I believe 
what Paul has been saying and what we've been talking about, that our justification and our righteousness is found in Christ, and that when we stand before God in eternity, God is going to receive us, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I don't doubt my salvation, but here's the thing. I wake up every single day wondering if God really likes me. The reality of God accepting us and justifying us and making us righteous in his son is one thing. Actually living in the experience of that is entirely different. That's where Paul's going to go in chapter 4. That's next week. So don't skip next week. That's next week. It's family Sunday. I know you're thinking, I don't want to sit there. It's next week. It's good. Because the reality of it is, I know it to be true of myself and I know it to be true of so many people here. We don't doubt the reality. But living out of the experience of it is entirely different. Two things I want you to see, though, real quick about the reality of what Paul is saying, that in Christ, your relationship with God is fundamentally different. There are two aspects to this that I want you to catch this morning before we get to the experience next week. And the first thing I want you to catch is the certainty of it. Paul says that in Christ, you are. Not, here's the goal for you to achieve, Not, here's something that I want you to work towards. Not, here's something if you work really hard and obey really well, you can become. No, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, in his son, you are sons of God. And I want you to cherish the certainty of that reality, and I don't want you to try to run away from what Paul's saying there. And here's what I mean. There are some of you that hear what Paul's saying here, and immediately in your mind you're thinking, I really wish he would change the way he says that. Some of your Bible translations have already done it for you. Some of your Bible translations will say you're all children of God. You're all sons and daughters of God. In an effort to bend towards the inclusivity of a day, it's changed the language that Paul was using. And in trying to bend to the inclusivity of the day, do you know what happens? You've emptied the radical message of grace that Paul's been saying. I want you to cherish the certainty of what Paul is saying about those who have placed their faith in Christ. And I want you to cherish the fact that whether you're in this room as a man or a woman, that in Christ you're a son. And here's why. In Paul's day, when Paul would have written this in the ancient civilizations, Who could actually inherit property from the family? Sons, that's it. The only legal heir to property was a son. A woman had no legal right, a daughter had no legal right to inherit any property from the family. I want you to let what Paul said just sink in for a second. Paul just said that by the grace of God through faith in his son, all, When you go back and read that verse in the Greek, the word of emphasis in a Greek sentence is the first word. The first word in verse 26 of chapter 3 is the word all. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, all. Doesn't matter if you have a Y chromosome or not. All become sons. Who was legally able to inherit all the promises of the family? Sons. What God is saying through Paul right here is that it doesn't matter how you were born. By the grace of God, through faith in his Son, you in Christ become heirs of the fullness of all that God has promised. Male or female, it doesn't matter. When you try to change that language, you empty the radical message he's actually saying. Daughters couldn't inherit it. Sons could. By the grace of God in Christ, you become recipients of the blessings of the promise. Just like every man in this room, 
has to come to terms and cherish in their heart the reality of the metaphor that we're part of the bride of Christ. I can't stand when pastors try to diminish that. It was cool about 10 years ago for pastors to stand up and talk about how hard it was for men to see themselves as part of the bride of Christ. That's foolishness. It's a beautiful thing. Don't empty what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying here is inherently radical, especially in his day. Anyone, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, finds themselves as heirs of the promises and the inheritance. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. And in that inheritance and in that transformation, our relationship with God is entirely different. And when I think about this for myself and my own experience, and when I think about the way that it impacts people here and the way we've talked about it, one of the things I most lament about my own conversation and about the way I've processed what God's done for me through salvation is that I tend to major on the minor notes. Now, not that there's really any minor note in salvation, but I'm going to try to draw a distinction here, so bear with me. I tend to major on the minor notes, the darker sides of it, and I think most of us do too. And when I say that, I mean we talk about the fact that our sins have been forgiven. Our guilt has been taken off of us. All these minor chords, if there is a minor chord. And we never seem to cherish and live out of the major chords and the major notes of the gospel. It's not just that sin has been forgiven. It's not just that guilt has been taken off and pardoned. It's that something else has been given to us. There's a whole other side to it. It's not just that sin is, sins are gone and cleansed. It's that a new identity has been given. A new status has been given. We're now sons. We're now heirs. We're now accepted. We're now part of the family. We don't live out of that aspect of what God's done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ quite the way we talk about and try to live out of the other side. Friends, this is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Paul is going to unpack the experience of this and the fullness of this for us next week. But I, I want you to catch that in Christ, in Christ, your relationship to God is fundamentally, fundamentally different because your status before God has been changed. And you don't have to earn it. It's not something you work towards. It's something that's yours because you're in Him. And then Paul says one way that we demonstrate. He's going to talk about two ways, really, that we demonstrate this reality of our union with Christ. And one way that we demonstrate, that we proclaim, that we make visible this reality of our union with Christ is through baptism. Look what Paul says in verse 27. For as many of you as, for as, many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You know, one writer said, and I've loved the way he said it, that, that baptism is the declaration, the demonstration of our unity, union with Christ going public. The union with Christ that is ours is going public as it's demonstrated and proclaimed in baptism. Paul will talk about being baptized into Christ in other places. He does it most specifically in Romans 6 where he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Our baptism is a public demonstration. It's a public proclamation of our union with Christ that we have been united to our Savior who died and rose again and with him in his resurrection we have been raised to the newness of life. It is God physically impressing upon our body the truth and the reality of our union with the death, burial, and resurrection of a living Savior. It's a visible, tangible expression of the gospel. It's a visible demonstration of the glories of the gospel, of our union with Christ, that we have been crucified with him in his death and we have been raised with him in his resurrection. That's why one theologian will say the amazing truth of being able to pass through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Jesus, of having our sins washed away, are truths that are so momentous and of eternal proportion, they ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God if only churches would teach the union with Christ and the truths of baptism more clearly, baptisms would be the occasion of much more blessing to the church. One way we demonstrate our union with Christ, one way we proclaim our union with Christ is through baptism. Those who are proclaiming their union with Christ in baptism are proclaiming, Paul says grammatically here, that they've put on Christ. Having put on Christ and the robes of his righteousness, we demonstrate that reality in baptism. It's a beautiful metaphor. Paul could have had any angles on right there, but the most consistent one would have been the way that Paul was teaching how before Christ, remember this is contrast, before Christ, the law served as our guardian, as our tutor, as our disciplinarian. Remember that? And in Greek society, children from about the ages of 5 to about 16 were raised by a guardian, a disciplinarian, who, cared, who protected them and escorted them around and disciplined them. Well, in those days, children who were under the care of a guardian until the day that they were presented to dad as a grown-up, all of their garments, all of their robes had a crimson, had a crimson uh, um, edge on them. All the hymns were red or crimson. So when you saw someone age five to about 16 or 17 and their garments had that crimson edge or hem on them, you knew they were still under the care of a guardian. They had yet to be received as a grown-up. But when they were presented to their dad as a grown-up and the work of the guardian was done, those clothes were taken off and the clothes of adulthood were put on. Their clothes no longer had that crimson hem on them anymore. They were now grown-ups. The young men were now heirs, able to be heirs of what God had, what dad had promised. Paul's saying for those who have put on Christ, for those for whom the law is no longer the guardian, the work of the law has been finished. We have put on the clothes, the robes of Christ's righteousness, and we have proclaimed that union and that reality through baptism. Beautiful picture that Paul is saying. And I love the fact that Paul in this part of this uh, Galatians chapter 3. I love that Paul here goes to baptism because if you've been here with the, the whole chapter for the last few weeks, Paul has been trying through Scripture to clearly articulate who really are the people in the family of God, who really are the descendants, the offspring of Abraham to whom the promises of God were coming, who really is that? And I love that in this part of the argument and talking about who really are God's people and clarifying that Paul goes to baptism because baptism was the outward sign not only of a personal response of faith, but it was also the response of the community that belongs to Christ because of his grace. 
One writer will say that those who belong to the community of baptized believers, those who have been dipped and dyed in the color of Christ, they've put off their former selves and now stand in a fundamentally different relationship to the world. See, what we're proclaiming is not only our union with Christ made visible, we're proclaiming our new relationship and identity with God, but a new way that we relate to each other. As Paul will put it in 2 Corinthians 5, the old is gone, the new has come. All of that's true, not only for us as individuals, but also for the church as the called out people of God. This is true not only of individuals, but the church, and something radically new and different has occurred within this baptized community, Timothy George said, so that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In some sense, these fundamental human distinctions have been superseded by a new relationship of being in Christ. See, being in Christ radically and fundamentally changes and transforms our relationship with God. No longer slaves, but sons. Entirely new status. Entirely new identity. Entirely new way of relating to Him. But not only that, being in Christ radically transforms and is meant to radically transform the way that we relate to one another. The ways that you and I in the world would distinguish ourselves from each other, the ways that you and I would unite ourselves with others in the world around us, don't disappear, Paul says, but they've become superseded by something more important. Something more important has come. An identity even greater has come. This is what he says in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you come to the dinner series, you may have been there on week one. Pastor Raymond did a great job talking about this verse, how Paul takes some of the largest and most fundamental ways that you and I distinguish ourselves from one another in the world. Issues of ethnicity, issues of economic viability, issues of sexuality. These things have been the primary ways that humanity has distinguished itself from one another throughout history. They have continued to be, they were then, they still are now, the greatest barriers to the harmony and unity of humanity. What color is your skin? What language do you speak? How much money do you earn? How do you earn it? Do you have a Y chromosome? Those have been the questions that have historically divided humanity. Some sociologists will say you can trace all of history, whatever you find in the history books, as some kind of skirmish over one of those questions, over one of those distinctions, either ethnicity, economic capacity, or sexuality. And here's the thing. In themselves, none of those things are inherently sinful. You realize that? In themselves, our ethnicity, our economic opportunity, our sexuality, none of them are inherently sinful. In fact, they make up the substance of life itself. The problem is, through the perversity of sin, those things get distorted. Our ethnicity becomes a point of racism and national pride. Our economic viability becomes a place of materialism and greed. Our sexuality becomes a place of lust and sexism. These things become the ways by which people divide themselves become the way by which people order who's in and who's out. What Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that in Christ, those distinctions all of a sudden disappear 
And he's not saying that in Christ, those distinctions now aren't important. They're still important. They still exist. Quite literally, Paul didn't cease being a Jew when he was in Christ. What Paul is saying, don't make him say more than he's saying, what Paul is saying is that those distinctions don't divide or determine our standing in God's family. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying that being in Christ, rather than dividing God's people or determining who's in or who's out or where you stand, what Paul is saying is that in Christ, those distinctions are meant to enhance, not detract and not divide. They're meant to enhance the unity of God's people. They're meant to enrich our interdependence and our service to one another in love. In Christ, it's those distinctions that are meant to make the glories and the beauty of his grace more striking and more clear. One theologian will say, in other words, this is a oneness because such differences cease to be a barrier and a cause of pride or regret or embarrassment. Did you catch that? In Christ, these distinctions are meant to no longer be a cause of pride, regret, or embarrassment. Rather, they become a means to display the diverse richness of God's creation and grace, both in the acceptance of the all and in the gifting of each. He said, we have the best and truest fellowship when we recognize our diversity, but see it as less important than our unity in Christ. Distinctions don't become unimportant. They don't disappear, but they become the means by which together in Christ we enhance and reflect the beauty of his diversity and grace. Sounds great, doesn't it? Let's be honest, though. We've got a long way to go. Even in, in this church, we, we've got a long way to go. I don't know where it was. Someone sent me a, 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 an article or a blog or something that had been written I can't remember who wrote it. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I can't remember who wrote it. It doesn't really matter. But it was how now in today's world, in, in places like the New South and churches like ours, pastors and congregants are once again playing the race card off one another. And they're asking me what I thought about that. Do you know why people can still claim that one group or another group is playing this race card against each other? You know why? Because we still choose to leave it in the deck. That's why. Somewhere along the way, we still choose in Christ to leave these distinctions in the deck to be played. Paul's not saying they go away, he's not saying they become unimportant. Paul's saying there is a greater reality and a greater identity with which we are to understand one another. It doesn't mean we walk around the church now going, we don't see color. Doesn't mean we walk around with each other and go, you know what, I'm colorblind to these kinds of things. What Paul is saying is that these things are no longer meant to divide or determine our standing in God's family with one another. They're no longer meant to be means by which we choose whether or not we're going to be together. They become means by which in God's redemptive plan, they enhance the grace with which he saved us. You realize it doesn't matter where you were born or what situation you were born into, when it comes to your salvation, there is no difference or distinction amongst us. It doesn't matter. 
for all the differences and all the distinctions in this room now at 9 o'clock or over there at 10 o'clock. It doesn't matter where you were born or what you were born into. When it comes to salvation, there is no difference. Every single one of us, regardless of where you were born or what you were born into, are equal under the law and equal in the gospel. We're all equally in need of salvation and equally unable to save ourselves because of our sin. We're all equally in need of the same cross and the same empty tomb. It doesn't matter where you were born, what you were born into, you need the same atoning death and the same bodily resurrection as everyone else. You need the same Christ. And what Paul is saying is that once you've come to Christ by the same faith as everyone else, it's the same Christ for everyone, and everyone is in the same Christ. Because of Jesus, you've got to catch this, because of the cataclysmic event of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Paul is writing to a church in an utterly divided Roman world that is standing amazed at what they see because in Christ, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, have come together and are working together and living together as one, no longer allowing those distinctions that are real and that are important to divide them or determine their standing in the family of God, but rather serving one another in interdependence and love and a divided world stands utterly amazed at how that happens. That's what Paul's talking about. So some 2,000 years later, when you and I read Galatians chapter 3, you need to hear Paul's voice going, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. The question for us as we wrestle through Galatians chapter 3 is will we allow ourselves as a family to be divided over important but not ultimate issues? Paul's not talking about social justice The reality of it is, if you and I really begin to cherish and understand what he's saying in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the way that we relate to each other and the way that then we relate to an outside world will be radically changed if we follow the path he's put here. Will we allow ourselves to be divided over things that are important but not ultimate? See, here's the thing. If you and I refuse to allow anything under Christ to divide us, You realize this, if we begin to to cherish and to live out the reality of what it means to be in Christ together, a unity that we can't manufacture, we can only receive by the grace of God. If we refuse to allow ourselves to be divided, to be determining of who's in and who's out and how we relate, if we allow anything under Christ to divide us, we look just like the rest of the world. But if we refuse, if we fight for the reality that is ours in Christ together, if we don't allow any of those things, while important, yet not ultimate, if we don't allow them to divide us, you know what happens? In God's timing, a watching world stands amazed. Why? Because we stick out like sore thumbs. One pastor, in thinking about this himself, he said, how about you and I? 
How about us, the church, those in Christ? How about we exalt Christ and cherish one another for his sake? And let's do it so clearly that even the devil trembles with rage as he sees in our unity his own defeat. Did you catch that? He said, how about you and I cherish one another so dearly and so clearly? How about for the sake of Christ, you and I cherish one another? That crazy brother or sister in Christ whose Twitter account you wish you could shut down. Whose Facebook account you wish you could just eliminate. That crazy brother or sister in Christ with whom you disagree and you're both partly right and both partly wrong. What if we cherished one another so deeply, not for each other's sake, but for the sake of Christ, that in our unity, the devil sees his own defeat? How great would that be? He went on to say that if you and I, if we retreat, if we turn back and retreat to what's comfortable, those things that we can so easily gather around, those distinctions that we can so easily separate ourselves from one another in, those things that are important but not yet ultimate that define us, if we retreat back to what's comfortable, he said we become just another selfish church caressing our own individual definitions of victimhood. Friends, will we allow ourselves to be divided over important things, but not ultimate things? Friends, or will we demonstrate? Will we reflect? Will we proclaim, not just with our mouths, but with our lives to a divided city, to a hostile city, to a broken city, that the grace of God is stronger than our own personal anger and bitterness. That unity in Christ is greater than our own personal selfishness. Will we proclaim, not just with our mouths, but with our lives, that Christ really is real and anyone can be found in him by faith in him. This is what a watching world, this is what a broken city is looking for. It's what a broken city has no answer for. And by the grace of God, he intends for his people to reflect that it might draw those who don't know him to him. Friends, every week we get the privilege as we gather together as a family to remember, to celebrate, and to proclaim our union with Christ. I don't know if you realize it, but every single week as we come together as God's people and we come forward and we receive communion and the bread of communion, remembering the body of Christ broken in our place for our sin and the cup of communion, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for our forgiveness. I don't know if you know this, but God is tangibly impressing, using your body, impressing upon you through your senses the truth and the reality of your ongoing participation in a living Savior. Communion is a visible and edible experience of the exceedingly good news of the gospel, that Christ dwells in you and you in him. Just like baptism is a physical, tangible proclamation of our union with Christ, communion is a physical and edible proclamation and reminder of our union with him.
we have really and truly, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, become one with Him. All the promises of God, all the riches of the gospel are yes and amen in Christ. Friends, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to give you a chance to reflect on God's word for you to deal with Him, for Him to deal with you. And then together for those who by the grace of God have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus, we are going to proclaim our confidence and our joy and our union with Him as we receive communion together. And then we're going to sing. We're going to make much of Him with our mouths and then be sent out from here as His people. So let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning that, Lord, you lift our eyes up to all that you are for us in your Son. God, forgive us. Forgive me for all the ways that I think and all the ways that I speak that make your Son, that make our Savior a means to a bigger end rather than the end in itself. God, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause every heart in here this morning to cherish nothing greater than we cherish your Son. That we love nothing greater than your Son. That Jesus, you are the end. You are the end of it all for us and our delight is being found in you because it's in you that the promises of the Father come. God, we ask that you would that you would do this work in our hearts for our joy, for Jesus' glory. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.